In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Planets, stars, distant galaxies, nebula, meteors, comets, and everything in between. This is Good Heavens, a podcast about the cosmos and the glory of God with Wayne and Dan. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, recently spent somewhere in the neighborhood between $800 million and $1 billion for approximately 250 grams of dirt and debris obtained from a near-Earth asteroid. On the high side, that's about $4 million per gram. Why spend so much money for, well, dirt? This extraordinary expenditure, hands down, beats the value of any precious gem or mineral found here on Earth. Here is NASA's administrator, Bill Nelson, at a recent press conference, suggesting that this dirt may give us answers to life's biggest mysteries. Why are we doing this? Because at NASA, we are trying to find out who we are, what we are, where we came from, What is our place in this vastness called the universe? Stop and reconsider Mr. Nelson's remarks for just a moment. NASA wants to know who we are, where we came from, and what our place in the universe is. It is a hallmark of our times that the answers to these questions ought to be within the exclusive domain of the scientists. But why? Science popularizers already seem to know the answers. We are told repeatedly that the carbon in our bodies came from long-dead suns, that the Earth has no special place in the cosmos, that the cosmos has no special purpose, that we as human beings are insignificant, that our lives and the universe are just a random, unintended, and purposeless amalgam of matter and energy, which will eventually just all disappear. Whatever we have done in our lifetimes will be utterly and completely forgotten. That is quite a depressing scenario. But as we heard last week, this is finally not science. This is merely philosophical speculation, opinion, and the subjective interpretations of scientists, which of course they are free to have, but no lab at NASA could ever hope to substantiate a word of it. For many, these interpretations of the heavens and our place within them help keep the door closed on the question of God's existence. Consider the thoughts of astrophysicist and science popularizer Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson in his book Death by Black Hole and Other Cosmic Quandaries. Quote, If I propose a God who graces our valley of unknowns, the day may come, empowered by the advance of science, when no more valleys remain, end quote. Reading between the lines, Tyson's view of God is a God of the gaps caricature. Tyson insinuates that God is really just a placeholder for what science has yet to explain, 
and that science quite possibly will be able to explain virtually anything, as though science will one day be omniscient. But science would have to be omniscient in order to rule out the existence of an omniscient being. At the very least, science would have to know what God is like to know he does not exist. Dr. Tyson is merely advocating for a scientism of the gaps. This is the idea that science will eventually come to the point of being able to explain nearly everything to the exclusion of any divine telos. But how would scientists appropriately formulate a correct definition of God in order to rule out his existence? You cannot, for example, rule out the presence of plutonium or uranium in a rock sample unless you know what plutonium or uranium are. And even if science could explain the ultimate law of the universe in a single one-inch equation, it would not in the least rule out God's existence. Equations are inert, abstract explanations. They have no causal power. They are merely numerical summations of what scientists observe, not the actual creative agent behind the observed phenomena themselves. In the same chapter, Dr. Tyson boldly declares, quote, Let there be no doubt that as they are currently practiced, there is no common ground between science and religion. End quote. Either Dr. Tyson did not do his homework, or he just meant to be a little hyperbolic for the sake of selling books, or a little of both. But his quip is about as incorrect as anything could possibly be. For starters, perhaps Tyson was unaware of the 2005 book, 100 Years of Nobel Prizes, by Baruch Shalev. Shalev catalogs all Nobel Prize recipients between the years 1901 and 2000. He found that over 65% of Nobel laureates have identified Christianity in its various forms as their religious preference. That's 423 Nobel Prizes. Overall, Christians have won 78% of all the Nobel Prizes in Peace, 72% in Chemistry, 65% in Physics, 62% in Medicine, 54% in Economics, and 49% of all Literature Awards. It is a fact of history that science in the West owes its origins to the distinctively Christian assumption that God created the physical world and that he created the world to be studied and understood for his glory. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Perhaps Dr. Tyson was also unaware of the inscription from the 111th Psalm over the door of the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. But Dr. Tyson is not alone in casting doubt and aspersion upon the idea of God in relation to science and the universe. A godless materialist universe is the foundational paradigmatic assumption of most major educational and research facilities in existence today. So each time there is a mission sent out into the vastness of the cosmos, you will often hear the same remarks about scientists wanting to know who we are and where we came from. 
But despite all the wondrous data collected over the years from the surface of Mars, from Saturn's rings, from Jupiter's enigmatic and surreal cloud tops, from lunar rocks, from black holes and supernovae, and from the light of the most distant galaxies ever seen, NASA is not one whit closer to answering any of the aforementioned big questions. As Wayne concluded at the end of our last episode, perhaps the scientists are looking in the wrong place for answers. Come and see. So Wayne, let's let's do talk about though. I mean, it's, we're not saying that scientific discovery isn't fascinating. It's just a meaning a matter of how are they interpreting this? What does it finally all mean? So Wayne, what is this latest discovery that has got you all excited? Uh, about uh, the heavens. What have we pulled down from the cosmos? Yes, we have literally um, scooped up some material from an asteroid and brought it back to the Earth with a, a robotic spacecraft. And you know what? Osiris-Rex. Osiris-Rex. Now, tell me, Wayne, does this mean like in a couple of years we're going to be able to go on Amazon and order a space drone to go out to an asteroid and bring us back some cool space rocks? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, that would be uh, more than I can afford, I'm sure. And the, the shipping would be astronomical, wouldn't it? Yes, literally. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but Sorry. Uh, this is really fascinating to me after I got to reading about this. Oh, All right. There's a little, uh, well, I say little, uh, an asteroid called Bennu. And this asteroid, I I found out it's it's actually about the same uh, size as the height of the Empire State Building. So wow, to us it's not like it's small, but that's a relatively small asteroid. It's not a okay. really big one. Got it. Uh, okay, and so the reason they wanted to study this. Is it's one of these? It's a near-Earth asteroid, so it's out at a distance, Dan, of about 1.2 astronomical unit. And remember, Earth is at one AU. That's how we define what an what an astronomical unit is. It's where the Earth is mm-hmm. <laughs> compared to the Sun. Mm-hmm. So Bennu is out uh, between Earth and Mars. It's an asteroid that crosses Earth Earth's orbit sometimes. And it actually okay. is an object that will come fairly close to Earth. It's one of those objects that they uh, they want to watch where this is going and make sure it's not going to hit us. There, there's uh, a program that NASA and other people do has done, have done for years where they're watching the skies for small objects that are asteroids that could actually come close to hitting the earth mm. and little small objects like this are easily um, perturbed their their orbits are easily changed the way they spin can be easily changed and so there's some unpredictability but um, so there's an effort to just keep an eye on them uh, and so one of the questions you have about an object, let's say that there was one that was coming close to Earth and it might hit Earth, and they're not not usually likely to hit Earth at all, okay? They're very unlikely, really. But 
um, let's say that there was one heading toward Earth. Uh, one of the questions comes of uh, what is it made of and what would you do about an object if it's heading toward the Earth? Because so, some of the some of the asteroids, Dan, are very loosely held together and they're not very hard and they're not um, – but some of them are hard. Like some of them are – called stony or they're iron nickel and they're very hard and some of them are not hard so now Bennu is one of these that's not very hard it's kind of just loosely held together um kind of like if you if you took a lot of rocks and sand and 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 uh little uh, some ice and pack pack Packed it together, and it, it, people have described what it looks like is that it looks like a charcoal briquette. briquette. It does, it does, <laughs> but it's a, a loose conglomerate. Kind of think of um, a Rice Krispie treat. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just kind of a, uh, but it, it, compared to like a, a, a cannonball or a bowling ball or something, that this is a yeah. loose. A loose a loose aggregate of rock and sand and dirt and whatnot. So something like Bennu would not be. As dangerous as some other asteroids because it is l- loosely held together like this because Earth's atmosphere would probably break it up a lot, but it's still gotcha. enough enough that it could cause some damage probably. So anyway, what they did was they they made uh, this spacecraft and Osiris Rex is actually a long acronym. It, it means Origins Spectral Interpretation Resource Identification. And security, Regolith Explorer. Oh, that's kind of a long. That's mm. all the name of this mission. Anyway, so you imagine it's kind of a box that has a bunch of instruments in it, and the instruments are mainly for uh, uh, determining what this material is made of, and it's going to sample uh, some of the material from this Bennu asteroid, and it's got two. Uh, things that look like wings that they are solar panels and it has an arm that comes out and it looks like a kind of like a a one-legged thing that sits down onto the asteroid i i I like to call it a flying pogo stick (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so it has an arm that pokes down below it and on the end of the arm there is a uh, something that's kind of a kind of like a basket, and it sits down on the surface of the asteroid for just a few seconds. Keep mm. in mind that this asteroid is relatively small, so its gravity is very very weak. And so what mm. the spacecraft does is it comes in, and it it's almost like bouncing off of it. But what it does is it sits down for just a few seconds. It gets a good foothold on the surface and then there's these uh, little uh, it it does these uh, puffs of nitrogen gas that are blown into this foot on the bottom and the and it kicks up material that's collected inside this little basket like thing that's on this the Mm. foot of this deal so it captures material that's kicked up by the nitrogen but what happened was it was a little surprising to them because they thought that when, once they got on the surface, the surface would be more solid and held together than it really was. So when it set down, it actually kicked up lots of 
loose particles and objects, so little little pebbles and small rocks and uh, probably chunks of ice got kicked up by this when it sat down on the surface. And then so it sits on the surface. It does the little nitrogen gas and collects the material in this little collector deal. And then there are some rockets on it that go off and the rockets lift it back up. So it's going down to the surface and it sits there, collects its material, and then blows off the, the rocket so it goes back up in the into space again. And um, it's very tricky doing this sort of thing because when you have an object like Bennu, there are there's uh, rocks and particles and stuff coming off of this. It's it's a loosely mm. held together thing, and so it's uh, as they are approaching this thing, they have to dodge. Uh, objects and they have to go down so they want to find a safe place to to go down that will work for what they're doing so they have to find a spot to land and uh, and not get hit by something on the way down and they managed to do that so they did this and they they did the the collection but when they were coming off it kicked up so much material that there was extra rocks and and particles that got sort of stuck in the in the spacecraft <laughs> because the wow. surface because the surface of it was softer and more loosely held together than they thought you know um it hmm. reminds me of Dan once I was in western Kansas of fossil hunting with some friends and along the a creek bank of this this place, there was a, it's what's called sandstone. But sandstone varies a lot in how hard it is. Sometimes it's really hard, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's kind of loosely held together. So you could take a pocket knife and tear it up. <laughs> and that's the yeah. way it was in this one place along the creek bank. And there was because the rain came up, it was a storm, and it exposed some fossils. So we were finding these interesting fossils along this place. Well, that's kind of like Bennu. It was kind of loosely held together. And anyway, so the spacecraft lands, it makes its collection, then it blasts off again, it comes back to Earth. And now it has this this material that um, it, it's uh, parachuted down onto Earth when this with this little pod that's got all this material collected in it, there's there's going to be another one of these that goes out to another asteroid. Uh, and you remember there was another mission that went to an asteroid that was called DART. You remember the DART mission? There was mm-hmm. a DART mission was where a a spacecraft was deliberately made to crash into an asteroid. <laughs> yeah. And, and it destroyed yeah. the spacecraft, but it took pictures. It took video all the way down to where it crashed into it. And it's it's really interesting to watch that video. <laughs> mm. But uh, anyhow, the reason <laughs> they do this is because this that object, that asteroid, was another one of these asteroids that will come close to Earth. And they wanted to find mm. out, okay, can we crash something into it? and move it can we change its orbit 
see, if, if you have an object that's headed towards Earth, what would be the safest way to keep it from hitting Earth? You don't want to blow it to pieces because then you have lots of pieces. You have lots of fragments and they might still hit, hit Earth and cause a lot of trouble. So what you mm-hmm. want to do is keep it intact but move it. And you don't necessarily okay. have to move it a lot. You just want to move it, just nudge it a little bit the right way so that it will miss Earth. But in order, to, in order to do that, you have to catch it ahead of time so that it's you, you just nudge it and move it a little, and then you do it early enough and far enough away so that in time it'll miss Earth. That, that's really the idea. And they're... They're gotcha. looking into gotcha. this, and there's going to be more missions to asteroids, to near-Earth asteroids, mm. to discover, to, to look into these sort of questions. And I think it's going to be real interesting to find out more about what these asteroids are made of. Um, now, it's it's interesting, Wayne, that you uh, – that I didn't know this, but uh, just two days before I left for my – September October trip to Utah the Bennu capsule landed near Dugway Utah I don't know where Dugway is but uh I had passed <laughs> somewhere I had made a near miss of uh just missed uh, the the landing oh, yeah. of this capsule in Utah okay um, but it was uh, it landed on the 24th of September I was on my way to Utah on the 26th but anyway, um, that's fascinating. And the other, the other, let me. Huh. You had mentioned. I want to briefly tell everybody about this. You mentioned that the sample collector of of for Banu, the Osiris Rex, uh, looked like a what'd you call it? A uh, pogo oh, stick, kind of a bag of, basket on the end of a yeah. Pogo well, stick. <laughs> here's how kind of it all came together. Um, Banu was named after an ancient Egyptian deity. Uh, it was named through a contest 10 years ago uh, from a boy who was at the time nine years old from North Carolina. And uh, his name was, uh, what's his name? Um, oh, let's see, what did they have his name here? Uh, let's see. Michael Puzio, who would be 19 or 20 right now, okay. won the contest by suggesting that the spacecraft's touch and go sample mechanism, the Tag Sam, as you referred to it as a pogo stick, its arm and solar panels resembled the neck and wings in illustrations of the ancient god Banu. Yeah. The Egyptians believed as a gray heron, <laughs> so it looked like a bird. And uh, it's interesting that uh, Banu, we were just talking about creation and, and uh, creation gods of ancient civilizations. Banu is the ancient Egyptian deity linked with the sun, creation, and new birth. So okay. uh, Banu is also... Banu is also uh, a manifestation of the living symbol of Osiris, one of the chief Egyptian deities as well. So that's how the name came about. Um, but, of course, we know that uh, it wasn't a crane that had anything to do with creation. It wasn't Osiris. It wasn't Banu. It was God himself. But how interesting, Wayne, to me, I find this fascinating, that when we name things in the universe, we're always associating uh, many times, not all the time, but but a lot of times, Many of the more common names that we give to planets and things often come from the Greco-Roman pantheon or ancient gods or goddesses. Yeah. It's somehow that we're still associating divinity and deity with things that we discover 
in the cosmos. And we're still that making we're right? still making stories. We're still okay. telling the stories, and we're still re- reusing stories. And we're reusing stories, but uh, <laughs> how interesting that when astronomers put their best mind to it and come up with a name and a contest winner that, uh, however we name these things, the International Astronomical Union, many of the things that we have named in the sky come after ancient gods and goddesses. Um, of course, there's nothing to these ancient gods and goddesses, but it's interesting that human beings, despite our penchant for modernity and wanting to claim that God has nothing to do with the universe, we're still naming things in the universe after gods and goddesses. They still remind us of something divine and beyond ourselves. And I think that's very telling. I think that we're doing this because we are in the image, we are created in the image of God. The heavens do declare the glory of God, but because of our sin, because of uh, the fall, because of how we've impacted creation, we're not thinking correctly about the God who is there. And that's the tragedy of our time, uh, blinded by sin and and everything else. That, uh, but 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 I, I but I think this this tendency in science to name things after deities is is but one part uh, of a greater cum- cumulative case for for God's existence. That we know intuitively, as Romans one says, that this is all the creation of God. But we suppress that truth in in unrighteousness. Unfortunately, sadly. Uh, uh, yes, but we, it's amazing what we are able to do. I, the Osiris Rex it actually arrived at the space at, the, at Bennu around December 2018, I think. And mm. it, it, t- it took some time to get there, and then it was it was uh, you know like five years getting back mm-hmm. home to Earth, and. Um, they had one little problem on the way down when the when the uh, little pod was was parachuting down to Earth. When it goes through the atmosphere, there are two parachutes. And there's you know there's, there's an early one and a late one. You might say so. The early mm-hmm. one is called a drogue shoot, uh, a drogue parachute. The drogue parachute is just a little parachute, and it's not intended to really slow it down a whole lot. It's more made to uh, make it uh, tumble less, so it's more controlled mm-hmm. and steady. A stabilizer. And, and a stabilizer. stabilizes it on its way through the high atmosphere. And then when it gets down to the lower atmosphere, it it um, when it gets closer to the surface, then it puts out the big parachute. To, well, the drug mm. chute did not work. For Osiris oh. Rex, so it made made it tumble more as it went through the atmosphere, and it f- traveled faster. And it, it actually got down to the ground a few minutes before they had uh, expected it to. Uh, but the the second shoot did work, so it didn't get blown to pieces. Well, that's good. <laughs> so it's intact, and it's got the samples. In fact, it got more samples than they expected. So. They have lots yeah. of uh, so did uh, lots of science to work on for years. Did they come back with gold and diamonds? Because I know there was talk about there being platinum and gold and silver on this thing, or some I, precious metals. I don't know. I don't know what okay. what you're going right. to find in it. They, they haven't said much. Oh, about they, you what, haven't. T- they haven't said much about what they found yet, uh, except that they okay. got more sample than they expected. 
You mentioned earlier the uh, Banu looks like a charcoal briquette, and I totally agree. If you go online and look at pictures, it does look like a something yeah. you get out of, out of a Kingsford bag or something. Um, but uh, the samples, I saw pictures of the samples the other day too, and it they just look like fragments of a charcoal briquette. It looks yeah. like something you'd find at the bottom <laughs> of your barbecue. That's right. <laughs> uh, but this uh, is... There, uh, one thing, Dan, though, this is an asteroid that has carbon. This is a carbonaceous asteroid. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, it's going to have mm-hmm. ice in it, and I don't know what else it's going to. So it's going to be interesting to see what they find. What is it exactly? What is it, and what are they? What do they hope to find? And it'll be interesting to see how they interpret the particular elements that they uncover, if you will. We can't say on Earth because it wasn't on Earth. <laughs> what do we say? Yes. On asteroid? Um, what they <laughs> dug up? Um, but uh, it'll be fascinating to follow the story and see what they find. Uh, more curiously, how they will interpret this data, because I know there's been a lot of speculation about Bennu being a very old asteroid and perhaps containing things that uh, that uh, elements uh, from the very early solar system, and maybe they hope to find clues as to how our solar system formed long ago. But it's interesting, Wayne. We've talked a lot about uh, planetary formation, solar system formation, the problems with uh, how the solar system formed in modern theory. Um, and I wonder how much reading into the presuppositions of modern formation theories of the solar system are going to come out of this asteroid. In other words, they're looking at the data, maybe with the assumption about how the solar system formed. Yes. And those assumptions may cloud how they interpret what they find in the material that has come back from the asteroid. Yes, um, they always do that, and I have a problem with that. Um, yes. You know, I, the way, what I try to keep in mind is that God is not limited to the naturalistic patterns that scientists tend to assume. Of course not. And right. uh, so there's always some surprises. Mm. Uh, so I can't wait to see what kind of surprises they find. Yeah, that'd be really cool. No, uh, no speculation or talk of any sort of biologics being discovered in the dirt of uh, Banu. I heard. I haven't heard anything. About I that. haven't heard anything like that. But you know, it's not impossible for there to be something like amino acids in it because amino right. acids are easily formed in space, actually, in the right conditions, because you have mm. ultraviolet light that can drive organic reactions and form amino acids so amino acids are not a big deal they can easily form uh even in space in some cases Hmm. well i hear i i predict you know since it's carbonaceous what you said i think a lot of carbon there that uh, this is going to confirm in a lot of people's minds that uh, the carbon in our bodies came from some distant supernova or asteroid carbon from a long time ago. In other words, people are saying, see, the carbon in your body is the same carbon that's in the asteroid Bennu. Therefore, we must have come from an asteroid or an exploded star or something because the only way we can think of how carbon is made is through explosions and collisions and supernovae. We've talked a lot about the uh, yeah, explosions that doesn't and the gaps. Really, that doesn't really <laughs> make sense to me. But. No, I mean, it, it just because there's carbon in space and there's carbon in our bodies does not mean we came from space. That's a non sequitur. Right. It doesn't follow. Uh, God uses the same building blocks for everything. And just because there's carbon out there doesn't mean that's where the carbon in our bodies originated. The Bible says yes. that God took Adam from the dust of the earth. 
and uh, yes. it doesn't say anything about uh, supernovas exploding. There having to be supernovas before there was Earth dust. That Earth, uh, Earth was here before the sun, moon, and the stars. I know that is a, a particular head scratcher for skeptics, but uh, that's the way Scripture outlines it: that the Earth came first, and then the moon, and the sun, and the stars. Yes. And uh, astronomy, modern astronomy, has it completely antithetically the other way. Yeah. That uh, first the stars, and then the planets, and you know so. Uh, it's going to be increasingly more and more difficult the more you hang on to a biblical narrative of creation because science is continually purporting paradigms that are not generally in accordance with what Scripture outlines as uh, as Genesis has. And so um, I'll hold to the narrative. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't give us all the great details that science gives us, but uh, science – there's nothing, Wayne, and we've said this before, there's nothing in the physical cosmos – absolutely nothing that disproves to any capacity what God has revealed to us in Genesis. Right. And that's, I, that's so true. There's nothing about science that contradicts what the Bible says, except that you have to understand it correctly. And, uh, the key thing is, um, that the God of the Bible is able to do it. When you don't mm. believe in what the Bible says about creation, you mm. end up trusting in natural processes which can't do what is claimed. Mm. Mm. You're trusting well, in something that cannot deliver the goods. Right. You're ascribing – well, actually what modern science does is what the ancient Egyptians were doing, Wayne. They're ascribing <clears throat> divine powers – and attributes to physical things. This is exactly what modern science is doing. Look, the particles did it all by themselves. The natural forces did it all by themselves. The quarks and the gluons and the electrons and the protons just self-assembled. That the universe came about by itself. These forces are, are deities, Wayne. Look what they accomplished. Look what these blind natural forces Accomplish. Yes, I agree. Uh, but it's not like every scientist is deliberately thinking this no, way. But no. they, they tend to go along with ideas because it's all they've le learned. But there are other yeah. ways of looking at things. So right. we, it, there is room for a biblical view. There is. And I think I, I'm not to say that, and I'm glad you mentioned that point. We're not saying that scientists are sitting in their labs deliberately deifying creation. But when you take God out of the picture, his attributes remain. And you end up, speaking of God's invisible attributes, only your attribution is incorrect. It's not the protons and the neutrons and the quarks and the gluons and the atoms and the molecules that are doing all the self-assembling and the arranging. I mean, the word cosmos means arrangement. It's not that these things by themselves could just arrange themselves. When you hear of the Big Bang cosmology, what do you hear? You hear stories about how quarks and gluons just form, right? This is all right. we're told. The, the temperature gets to a certain point and quarks form. And atoms well, what's form. what's a quark? Yeah. Atoms form. Um, molecules form. Well, what do you mean? <laughs> well, I mean, literally, what do you mean? What, what is going on here? You're just, you're just telling me these things pop into existence and then arrange themselves in this peculiar, peculiarly—I can't even say that word—unusually peculiar 
manner. <laughs> I can't say peculiarly. I can't say it. Uh, yeah. It's beyond credulity, Wayne, that these these entities that they describe create this wonderful arrangement that we see with our eyes today. So yes. in the absence of God, they still need something to do the things that only God can do. And so they take the properties of God and they apply them to nature. And though the a host of cosmologists and astronomers aren't divinationists. They're not practicing astrology. They wouldn't say so. But they're doing exactly what the ancient cultures did before them in applying divine characteristics to created things. They worship the creator, the creation rather than, than the creator. Inadvertently, nobody's, not a lot of scientists would say that they're, they're creating gods out of things, but, but that's exactly the, the cash value of it if you want to look at it that way. They're, yeah. they're attributing... God's invisible attributes to the created order. That's the problem. Yes. So, Wayne, it's been a fantastic uh, whirlwind tour through the cosmos this month. Thank you so much for diving deep into Banu and uh, for all your wonderful knowledge and companionship throughout the six years we've been doing good heavens. Always good to chat with you and to discuss all things cosmological. And uh, any final thoughts about uh, what we've chatted about tonight? I think uh, remind our viewers once again to be safe. If you are in the path of the eclipse and you want to see it, please wear eye protection or yeah, be uh, safe. Do practice. Yeah. Use be the very two safe. pieces of paper the way I was telling. You, and they, we'll, we should give them a link, uh, Dan, to this NASA site that tells how to safely view. Uh, Right, right, right. We will. I'll put that link in the description. And uh, if you're not in the path um, uh, this weekend and you're listening to this after Saturday, just go online and look at the pictures and the videos that people have taken yeah. of this event. Just There's look on be you, plenty of YouTube that to see. Uh, the day after this, you know, and it'll, you'll have yeah. lots of videos mm-hmm. about it. Lots of videos and pictures to see about that. So do that. And uh, as you do, be reminded of what the Bible says uh, about the heavens declaring God's glory and, and what David said when he looked up at the heavens and considered the moon and the stars the work of God's fingers. He wondered and marveled about God's care for him. Yes. I think that's amazing, too, that, that, that God's care for us includes us being able to see the wonders in the cosmos that he has created. And so when you look up at the cosmos, do as David did and think of God's care for you. That's always an encouragement to me. Uh, It reminds me of God's faithfulness and his love to us and his unchanging, everlasting, um, reliable, uh, genuine, true uh, care for us. That he's always there even even when uh, our faith, even when we are faithless. He is uh, faithful and just to forgive us and he cannot deny himself. He remains faithful to us even when we waver in our faith. And so may the heavens... Remind you of God's faithfulness. Well, it's always amazed me that the infinite creator of the universe cares about each one of us and the details of our lives, and he really does. Um, yeah. And it, it, I, I believe that. As he says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah one five, I just read this morning, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Yeah. <laughs> and then one of my favorite verses... Ephesians 2.10, that God has created good works for us, that we may walk in them. God has a story written for you and I, and uh, may by his grace we all find that story and calling and 
participate in the way in which God has written our stories for us, for his glory. So, Wayne, this will conclude this little story in chapter four tonight. Thank you so much for joining me, and thanks for joining Wayne and I for these episodes of Good Heavens for the month of October. Have a safe and wonderful uh, fall, and we'll see you again right here next time, Wayne, on Good Heavens. Good Heavens. Good Heavens.